Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent, uh, and this week uh, we are having a lot of fun. I think we have fun every week. I have yet to regret a single episode uh, of this podcast as I'm talking to all my favorite people. I, I love authors. I love book people. It's a good time. Uh, but today I'm talking to John Gallagher, and he is a cartoonist as well as a, a middle grade author, and he has a new book called Max Meow, Cat Crusader, uh, which is very much rooted in his uh, love of comic books, Batman man in particular, which comes through right away. Uh, and so we have all kinds of fun talking about our, our love of all things Batman and comic books. We talk about uh, action figures and get really into the weeds on some nerdy stuff. So if you're looking for, you know, there's a lot going on in the world, but not on this show. This show, we're talking, we're talking Batman, we're talking comics, we're talking fun. Uh, I'm in an excellent mood this week because I got my hands on a PS5. I just paused my Miles Morales Spider-Man game to come record this for you. And the moment it's done, I'm going to go back and unpause Miles Morales and continue my swinging through the city. Uh, it's a wonderful time. It's a it's a glorious time to be alive, uh, despite all of the uh, uh, darkness in the country and the news and all that great stuff. But we're not talking about that today. We're talking about Batman. We're talking about fun. Uh, and John Gallagher is a kindred spirit because uh, he and I have both taken our mutual love of, of Batman and comic books and in. in, in uh, brought that to our writing for the middle grade crowd. Um, my book, which maybe you thought I was going to forget to mention, nope, never think it, Manicure Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is available as a paperback and audiobook, and the ebook is free, free to download whenever you're listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. But Manicure Bones, uh, I often described uh, as an 11 year old Batman. There are um, a ridiculous amount of Batman references throughout the uh, Banneker Bones trilogy. Uh, almost a, a nice little uh, Easter egg hunt. You can go on to, to, to hunt them all down. Um, and it is, uh, in fact, uh, the, the first book, uh, the working title was Banneker Bones Begins. Uh, and then the um, uh, working title for this third book, Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy, has been The Dark Bones Return. So it's it's, it's very much a Batman-type story in my mind. Uh, and it's about uh, 11-year-old Ellicott Skullworth, his cousin, who comes to live with Banneker because, as uh, John and I will talk about in our episode, we both had a mutual fantasy uh, that we might uh, one day be Robin. It's 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 difficult, uh, at least for me. Maybe 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 other children had more confidence, uh, but it was difficult for me to imagine myself uh, being Batman. But if I could go and I could find a, a mentor like Bruce Wayne that would train me and work with me, maybe I could one day be Robin. Uh, and that is uh, a big part of the story of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which again you can download for free. Um. One note about the show, uh, we get to talking uh, about our love of Batman the Animated Series, uh, and I mentioned specifically uh, some music that I love written by Shirley Walker for that first season of that show, uh, and I couldn't think what the track was. I sent the link to John after we talked, and I wanted to let you know in case you're curious, uh, but it's from... Um, uh, the the song is called Batman vs. Poison Ivy, uh, you know, pretty direct by Shirley Walker. And it's from uh, Season 1, Episode 9, Pretty Poison. Uh, so if you're curious about that soundtrack, that's something that I listen to frequently when I'm writing because it's just the most um, wonderful operatic battle between uh, good and evil and, you know, killer plants. It's a wonderful time. Um, 
So uh, without further ado, uh, our guest today again is John Gallagher, and episode 96 starts right now. John Gallagher, welcome to the show this evening. Thank you. Excited to be here. I am couldn't be more excited to, to talk to you. We've been talking a little bit before uh, about our uh, mutual fandom for all things comics and superheroes, and you're speaking my love language. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm crazy about Max Meow, uh, Cat Crusader, uh, which is available now, esteemed audience. Uh, so probably the best place uh, to start before we start talking about the book is if you would go ahead and give esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background. Uh, well, right now I am, uh, my day job for the last five years has been, uh, as art director for Ranger Rick magazine. So it's a kid's nature magazine. A lot of people either love it or they don't know that it existed, but it's been around for about 80 years. And, uh, I studied graphic design, um, and have been doing comics though, since I was five years old. And, uh, it really started because... I was watching Super Friends, uh, and my mom found a comic book for me, at, you know, when I was five, and it was a Shazam Treasury Size Edition. And from that moment on, I was I was just mesmerized. And um, but today, you know, I I've uh, been doing uh, self-published works for the last twenty years, and Max Meow is my first major uh, publication, you know, with uh, someone like Random House, which I'm excited to be with. And uh, it's um, it's just been a lot of fun, you know, in, in just uh, the past couple of weeks with Max launching. Super Friends. You, I've got a bunch of old Super Friends action figures in the back of my house where you squeeze the legs and the arms move to punch. Oh, them. the superpowers. Yeah, I yeah, I I'm old enough that I had the Mego action figures, which are, you know, the eight inch and uh, had them all, and I had the Star Trek figures, and uh, I, I just loved to come up with stories as a kid, and I was always really adamant, like, don't call them dolls, and, um, and yeah, so I just think, I think my imagination was always sort of going, and uh, I think for Christmas one year, maybe just a year later, my dad picked up the great comic book heroes, and it was uh, put together by the cartoonist Jules Pfeiffer. And in the foreword, he had a drawing that he had done when he was nine of his first comic book. And when I saw that, everything clicked because I liked to draw. I liked comics and superheroes, but I'd never thought about the fact like I can be creating comic books. And I just took, you know, a piece of paper and folded it in half and started drawing a cover. And I actually duplicated his, I think it was like radio comics, because this is back in 1941, I believe. And uh, so it was very much like with the three circles down down the side with the hero and the title at the top. And so I, I'd say my origins of comics go all the way back to the golden age in a sense. And, uh, you know, and then growing up, it was, I'm so excited to see your Batman action figures behind you there because Batman and Robin was really, you know, one of those great influences for me so if you go back and this is for you as, as well esteemed audience if you go back on youtube for the oh maybe the first 50 episodes or so i used to stand in front of the larger collection of batman figures and then somewhere in there it dawned on me dummy your show's about books get in front of books <laughs> <laughs> but uh you, you see part of the collection and i've got you know i've got them all the way up to Batfleck, and i can't wait to buy my robert pattinson batman 
it'll have a place of honor on the shelf, assuming that movie Knock on Wood actually comes out. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Well, and you know, for me, the obsession with Batman action figures was always the Bruce Wayne, you know, one with a removable mask, uh, which yes. they had. So going all the way back, my dad purchased me a, uh, I think he was coming back from the airport and he bought me a Batman and a Robin and Batman could take off his, his mask. And I, I don't know what it was about that that just fascinated me. And so when, you know, the uh, Tim Burton Batman came out, it was the action figure with Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne. And that's the one I always have to get. Whichever Batman it is, I've got to have the one where he transforms from Bruce Wayne to Batman. Yeah, that's the one with the little uh, stick-like bat symbol on his chest, which I think is a bad outfit for Bruce Wayne to maintain a secret <laughs> identity. <laughs> Exactly. I've got him. I've got Val Kilmer. I think I've got Clooney. <laughs> That's yeah, great. I've got all the, the Bruce Waynes with the removable heads. I've got a red hood someplace where you pop off the hood and there's Joker. <laughs> oh, wow. Fantastic. Um, so, okay. So tell me about Transmission Man, right? That's that. That's the start? Yeah. Well, the first comic that I drew was called Transmission Man and Carburetor Kid. <laughs> and I didn't know what a transmission or a carburetor was, but it, you know, it sounded good. And uh, the alliteration could not be beat. And I basically, uh, there were a couple things I picked up from that first drawing that I did where uh, the character was shooting lightning bolts from his hand. So that was something that I almost always had happening. I always had the cape sort of flowing up. Uh, and what's funny is, just last year, uh, my mom brought some papers down from when I was in school, and we actually found that very first comic drawing I ever did. And uh, it was it was kind of funny to see because there's a part of me that can just remember drawing it for the first time. But uh, Transmission Man was General John Johnson, and there was a transmission woman and a transmission baby. Uh, I don't know where Carburetor Kid, like, where he fell into the family uh, cycle there, if he was just the older brother or, or not. But uh, it was, and I would draw little word balloons for my mom to fill in the words because I couldn't write yet. <laughs> and, um, and that was the first time I learned, write the words first, then add the word balloon. Because, you know, it's every kid's nightmare when they draw a word balloon and they can't fit all the words in. And then the words are going down the side of the panel. I've done that, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've taught I've taught after school classes, and that's I'm always trying to you know explain to the kids like I was there, I know what it's like. You want to draw the picture first. I I mean, but you gotta leave like the top 25 or 30 percent of the panel for you know for your words. Otherwise, people won't know. I mean, that's one of the trickiest things to learn. I think as a young artist, and uh, and that that's what's funny is I was actually teaching an after school class when the idea for Max Meow came up, uh, because Max Meow is in just a hold of the book uh, like you did, and he's even there behind me. But um, Max Meow is the tale of a podcasting cat, and he's not very popular. He has a lot less fans than uh, than uh, Middle Grade Ninja does. Uh, only 12 or 13, and um, he decides, oh, I'm going to go interview my best friend, Mindy. Well, Mindy Microbe is a is a scientist, and he goes to her uh, lab and looks at all her inventions, and she has inventions like uh, Frisbee pizza 
and self-tying shoelaces. But one of the things that gets his interest when he's making this podcast is this meatball that she found in outer space. That's and the does. meatball, uh, <laughs> yeah, we had a, got a fan there. Um, and then the meatball, uh, uh, an evil robot comes and tries to steal the meatball. And somehow Max ends up eating a piece of the meatball and gets superpowers. And the way that all came about was I had some kids in this class I was teaching and they were just, they, they, you know, some kids in these art classes that I teach, uh, they'll just come, they say, give me a paper and a pencil and I'll just start drawing. And I, my job is to come around and go, Hey, that's pretty good. Good stuff. And what's this is about? What's this about? And, uh, but some kids are just so nervous, you know, they think they have to do it perfectly or they shouldn't draw. So I gathered these, uh, six or seven kids around and I'm like, we're going to create a comic together. And what came out of it was, uh, you know, oh, you like you like uh, uh, books about dogs? Well, let's what are books about cats? Okay, let's do a cat because there's already a dog a book about a dog. So uh, and then we started and it was we were going to call it Captain Cat and scientists. There were lightning bolts. There was a giant robot. And what was great was I would help draw a panel. Then maybe I would write a panel. Uh, I would ink a panel, and all the kids were trying different roles. And be before you knew it, we had a 12 page comic uh that we created like a factory you know like the old bull bullpen from marvel and they didn't even realize they had done this and they each had done different parts of it and they were so excited about this that the next week they're like what's going on with captain cat and eventually it became max meow cat crusader and um you know i was like wow this this is really it was kid tested and approved in the first day and that's I, and it really has had a great response uh, since I've started introducing it to young people. So were you able to keep that uh, going and and have the kids continue to give you feedback as you're working to finish the the book and and I spoiler the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and my ten year old uh, now he's thirteen. I think he was ten or eleven at the time. He had a lot of opinions because. Uh, my youngest uh, was dealing with, uh, it's funny, I've always been pushing graphic novels. I've always been telling kids how great they are. Um, my two older, older children, they, they liked graphic novels and comics, but they weren't super excited, but they, all, they loved to read everything. Uh, my youngest was a reluctant reader, and it, as it, he was diagnosed with dyslexia, and I would pick up any book I could to get him to read. And he really would try, then discard it, and it was really, it was so funny because graphic novels, uh, Dogman, Drama, Smile, these were the ones that just, you know, set his brain on fire. And he would be underneath the covers with the flashlight, uh, you know, read, even though we don't yell at him for reading. Um, so he had a lot of opinions when I created Max Meow. And he was the one who came up with the name Max Meow. And I wanted to call him, I can't remember, I had... Electrocat because Max shoots a electricity from his tail and he's like, no, 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 dad, cat crusader. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, it is, it, it's neat to have that feedback. And I, I was very lucky because I had an immediate uh, test audience that I could throw this stuff at. Look at you. You've got a uh, expression of your artistic vision, of course, but also a nice thing that you were able to do with your son. That's going to be special for your family forever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, going back to when my daughter was just four or five, 
I used to tell her bedtime stories because we have a golden retriever. And I tell stories about a little girl and her golden retriever. And when she was about 10, we created a comic together called Zoe and Ketchup, which is kind of like if Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes had a mean big sister. <laughs> and uh, so I created that with uh, my daughter, Katie, and just self-published it. And then I did one with my two boys together called Epic Bros, about two brothers whose dad was a superhero. And uh, this is sort of that extension. I've And a big part of that came because comics and graphic novels take so much of your time. I needed to come up with a way to do it, but also connect with them. Because that was, and ultimately, I think there's a more, more authentic feel to some of the work that I do because it it was all connected to the love I have for my kids. You've uh, got a esteemed audience. Looks forward to the uh, guest visits from Mabel the Cat. And she is hooked on Max Meow. She <laughs> I can't get enough. That's good. I I uh, don't have my, I don't know where my cat Millie is right now. I would have her say hello, but uh, <laughs> she seems to approve as well. Well, it's a big hit uh, here at the house. Not only uh, is uh, Mabel a fan, uh, my six-year-old son he he doesn't get to read all of the books that we talk about on the show with me, but he sat with me for this one. He <laughs> he had a great oh, time. That's so good. We are eagerly awaiting part two. Well, that's good. Well, and uh, part two, uh, I'll give you a little uh, preview of that is entitled Max Meow Donuts in Danger. And, and that uh, will be available when? That's coming out April 6th of 2021. So, uh, and with book three coming October of 2021. So we're, so I, I'm following a pretty aggressive schedule and Random House has been supporting me there. The plan is for a new book every six months. Uh, I guess until I fall over. And, <laughs> sure. uh, but we're starting with these three and hopefully everything will, uh, you know, kids will like it and, and we'll continue doing it. Um, and, you know, one of the things going from being a self-published author to someone who's working with an editor and a and a publisher is you is the is the time you work so far ahead. And I know I've I've seen on your show, you know, uh, when you had Laura Martin on, she talked about she you had seen a version of her book two years before it was published. And usually, like I, this book was finished about almost exactly a year before publication. And that was completely different to me because, you know, uh, as some a lot of self-pub people have done, there were some things I had printed at printers, but other things were through CreateSpace on Amazon. And I mean, you get immediate, you know, gratification because you print your book and it comes back to you in two weeks. You know, so this has taken a little bit longer and uh you know, uh, one of the tough things is, uh, in, like with today, is there's a lot more electronic uh, arcs or advanced reader copies that are going out. Uh, they, you know, I wasn't able, just as they printed uh, book versions of these, they kind of got locked up in the warehouse due to COVID. And it was one of those cases where we're just going to send digital copies to everybody. And I'm like, of course. But I was sort of like, oh, man. I would really like to have a big stack of those. And, and uh, so it's really exciting now to have the book published. Well, I'm sure the, the digital version is, is excellent as well, but it's not the same with uh, something that's this bright and colorful that, you know, that jumps off the page that you can hold in your hand. 
Right. And and yeah, 240 pages and it's hardcover. And I mean, it just feels like a good solid book. And at the same time, I've already gotten kids and parents telling me their kids finish the book in a day, finish the book in a day and a half, and they want to know when the next one is coming. And uh, I'm just Six months of your life working as hard as you possibly can, and then one day of theirs. <laughs> I know it's yeah because it, it, you feel like oh I put my heart and soul in this and it's and the, and someone reads it and it's like pancakes oh, I have another order and but at the same time it's the most flattering thing in the world because I you know I think most authors uh, most cartoonists are like that if they could just create a book a day they would and uh, but you know. The, the fun part is the ideas. There's a lot of times when it's just the work of doing the art, getting it colored, making sure you fix your mistakes. Um, that's one of the things I try to remind people, uh, young artists and writers who are want to do uh, this and get into this field. Is to uh, make the mistakes and fix them as fast as they can. Yeah, and, and don't let yourself get caught up. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, Max Meow, uh, I purposely, because we had created in the, in this classroom environment, had created Max Meow so fast that I purposely, uh, as I was working on the first, say, 70 pages, I, I started off drawing on paper and I was drawing and sketching just as fast as I could. I was doing 10 or 12 pages a day of thumbnails and because I wanted to have that frenetic feel to it. And um, so then when I went back to do the final art, I still had that sort of fun feel and I, I kind of had to uh, force myself not to clean up my artwork too much. I wanted that that feel you get when you've just drawn something, you know, sometimes you see sketches to comics and graphic novels and you they look more exciting than the final art. I wanted to not lose that. So in a sense, it's you know, have faith in yourself and be ready to make mistakes and kind of just keep moving. You know, yeah, I've met so many artists who just keep redrawing the same page over and over. And that's you, you know, all you're going to get good at is drawing those things that are on that page. But if you draw an entire story, whether it's three pages or 200, you're going to have to draw a lot of different things. And uh, the idea is just to try to do better each page. Well, with this book, without again, without spoiling, there are some major twists uh, there at the end that obviously involves some planning ahead of time because you set them up earlier. Um, do you have a similar plan for book two and book three and then book four, five and six or however far out you're going to go or? Uh, well, you know, when I initially pitched the book to Random House, I had a three book arc that I that I could do. And if we if we got through that, that would be great. Uh, I do write them in such a way that I want. Uh, a reader to be able to pick it up any any book and there will be a recap kind of what's happened and you know I mentioned how I love Batman the Batman TV series from the 60s used to always end with these questions like you know who is that mysterious figure in the in the shadows will Max be able to save the day and uh, of course my joke is they never really answer those questions half the time but you know that was influenced by the Batman TV series and they also used to do a little recap at the beginning of every episode. So I try to have that. And Max is basically doing his podcast and explaining to the reader what's going on. And uh, so I have a plan. I would say 50% of what I plan actually happens in my books. 
the other 50 becomes something different because the characters kind of will take off in a different direction. Uh, and I'm trying to think with Max Meow, there's, there's a whole scene where he's trying to save somebody who's stuck in a tree. And that was just going to be, it's the playoff, the old Superman pulls a cat out of the tree and brings it down. But Max hasn't learned how to be a superhero yet. So with his electric tail, he accidentally uh, blasts the tree and the person inside the tree, who's okay. But uh, the thing is that I knew there was going to be a rescue there. I didn't know what was going to happen. And, and I do have certain things that the characters learn about themselves. Uh, the first book is really about the, the the dichotomy of Mindy, who is a planner, and Max, who is not a planner. And he's got the superpowers, and he thinks it'd be neat to bust through a wall, whereas Mindy's like, have you tried turning the doorknob? And uh, and I feel like every, every kid can relate to that. We've all had that, when we were kids, had that energy. And, um, you know, book two deals with a different aspect of their relationship, which is Mindy is a planner. And what happens if you plan so much that you don't let yourself try new things? And so I tried, I want to have every book have something about it, but really have fun, have the fun be the, the part of the book that brings the kids in. And, and hopefully the story, the, the character development, because it's really about relationships, uh, is what gets them to read it a second or third time. No, and so many follow-up questions uh, to that, but um, something that strikes me right away when you do have uh, characters that are having arcs um, that their relationship does deepen, but you're going to go on for theoretically in perpetuity. Um, you know, we're, we're going to be talking about, I'm going to talk to you about Max Meow number 20. <laughs> <laughs> so when, when, you, when you have that, I mean, obviously Max will always have another villain uh, to face and villains will come back for revenge and all that, all the, all the usual things I imagine. Um, but when you do character arcs like that, is there a danger that once you once you satisfied, you know, if uh, Batman ever ever feels like he's fought enough crime and has full satisfaction, an empty place inside of him is at long last filled up? What's the issue after that look like? <laughs> right, that's a that's a good question, and you know, you, you're actually bringing up something that relates to, uh, you know, what we call mainstream comics, but I think are less mainstream than you know than the books that are in the library and that the middle grade books and YA books that we're reading. And in the case of to keep, you know, with Max Meow, it's it's my baby. And uh, if we reached a point, if I reached a point with that, then I would stop those books. Uh, I'd like to think that, you know, there may be an ending for Max. I haven't I haven't figured it out yet. And uh, but I do think it's important to not treat it. I wouldn't ever want to treat it like, oh, this is just you know, you get time to make the donuts. Okay, we'll just throw in these these ten ideas and and combine it together. There's always got to be something, and it's just like everyday life for us. You know, uh, we always we have these events that happen in our lives, but we get up the next day and new things are going to happen. And uh, so hopefully, uh, you know, those elements will be there. There's obviously some other great authors that have managed to add. Uh, uh, a multitude of books like Jenny and Matt Holm, who do the Baby Mouse series. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, Dogman, I owe a great deal to. And the level of fun that Dave Pilkey brings, but also the heart that he brings to readers with, uh, you know, that's something to aspire to. 
And uh, going back again, I actually had an arc for the first three books, but I went to t I went to type up the full plot for book two, and I wrote a completely different story. And luckily, my editor Shana Corey at Random House, she was so positive about it. She's like, "Sure, let's do this." And uh, you know, I always try to throw something tricky in that will make kids go feel smart. Like if they know this from reading a comic, they can go tell someone. They don't have to tell them where they read it. Uh, I wanted, I had just watched a documentary on the multiverse theory, on string theory. And I'm like, I'm gonna figure out a way to put that into a middle grade graphic novel. So, uh, so book two actually has element talking about multiple universes. And I think I explained it in a way that was understandable. And just as I learned when the Justice League and the Justice Society met in DC Comics years and years ago, that they explained, you know, this this whole theory that was really fascinating to me in kind of a, a way that I could understand. And I remember having people say to me, well, you know, how did you learn that? And I'm like, comic books. So I think that was what got me caught up. And uh, so I ended up taking my book two plot and moving that to book three. And book three is now book four. And, you know, so, and I, I did start to, you know, first book, you're always trying to just make it fun and exciting. And you don't know if there's going to be a book two. Now that I know that we've got a series of books, there are certain ideas I have. Now, they could go off in weird directions, but, you know, and like you asked, uh, what do you do when, you know, M Max reaches his goals? And uh, I guess, I guess just like me, he gets new goals. I assume he pulls in another Max from the multiverse and that Max has a problem <laughs> that he can help out with. That's right. That's right. <laughs> You were uh, mentioning, I, I, I howled at the scene where uh, uh, Max saves a person from a tree. Fantastic. Um, and it just made me think this is an old man story, but I think two Xboxes ago, there was a Superman Returns video game. It was an open world, and one of the missions was Superman flies around to multiple trees throughout Metropolis. It just saves cats. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, that's such a, an iconic scene in the original uh, Christopher Reeve Superman, the movie. Uh, where he brings a cat down and, you know, I I wanted to incorporate that in because even even when uh, uh, Superman was rebooted in the 80s by John Byrne, he incorporated a scene that was just like that. Uh, I think he added his own special flair. So I guess this was my attempt at that, my nod to these original superheroes. And, and, I, and I've come to understand, too, that, you know, a lot of the cartoonists who are doing uh, – the, the middle grade novels aren't necessarily people that read superhero comics as kids. Uh, that's, you know, definitely where I'm coming from. Uh, Judd Winnick, who does Hilo, he, he, like me, was a superhero kid. And so I'm just sort of fascinated because I didn't realize there was another way to come into comics uh, until talking to, like, Raina Telgemeier, who, of course, read comic strips and for better or for worse. And uh, so about 10 years ago, I started to really start looking at comic strips in a different sort of way because I had always come from the comic periodical and the, the comic strip itself it has to do so much in such a short period of time. And I would say uh, Max Meow is definitely me trying to tap an inner Charles Schultz or Bill Watterson in, in the... Again, it's it's going to drawing fast and fun.
Well, that leads me to a question that I was on the fence about whether or not to ask, but I'm going to go ahead now. On page 15, there is a dog that, for copyright reasons, clearly is not Snoopy, but <laughs> looks just a little bit like Snoopy. Is that is that your homage there? Uh, well, I love Charlie Brown and I love Snoopy. I hmm, I uh, I think I'll I'll neglect. I uh, won't. <laughs> I have but, set uh, you up in an impossible position. We'll say, oh, it's just it's 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 just the dog character. <laughs> it's just an, it's just another black and white beagle. What can you say? Uh, where, where is page fifteen? Oh, there, there it is. We'll we'll hold it up here for the YouTube audience. Oh yeah, and that's yeah. where Max gets in the elevator to go down to Mindy's lab, and it travels sort of in a la labyrinth of. Uh, ways to finally get down to her and that was something when things like that took place in books when i was a kid where there was something that was extra fun and extra silly uh that maybe offered up these little jokes because uh in book two i have he he tries to go down to mindy's lab and there's a different kind of elevator and he goes down through and you see these little creatures around um around a, uh, a cauldron and they're saying oompa oompa and then by the time you get down you might realize this looks very similar to the glass elevator from Willy Wonka and uh, Max says that's a you know you should never buy an elevator from a chocolate factory and <laughs> so I, I do try to have those homages to some of the the authors and the books that inspired me because especially because I'm hoping that if someone goes and reads Willy Wonka or, you know, knows Snoopy, they'll be like, I know that. And I, I think it's so fun when you think, when you're part of the joke. Well, obviously there's a, there's a fair amount of Batman in here with Cat Crusader. Um, there's a, at least one panel where Max is holding up a car, which is very, you know, iconic. Superman was amazing comics. Um, sure. Or no, I'm thinking Spider-Man. Gosh, what's, oh, I'm embarrassing myself. Act number one. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Action, amazing. Yes. Um, and then there's a bit of, I think, a bit of Shazam uh, in here as well. Yeah. What are some that I might have missed? What What else are you making uh, homages to? Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the references. You know, there's certain, there's always a certain level of Chuck Jones, uh, Bugs Bunny cartoons that are are flowing through my brain. I hear a lot of the, as I'm drawing, I hear a lot of the Bugs Bunny, the soundtrack, the, the orchestral music in the background. Uh, and I would say that Agent M, who is the, uh, the, I would say he's pretty evil in this book. Uh, the grumpy mouse who is behind the plot to steal the space meatball. I imagine him sounding an awful lot like uh, Yosemite Sam and, uh, and which is funny because years ago when I was in college, I kept applying for, you know, sending in my artwork to comic book companies. And uh, I, I had drawn this one and it was a, about a guy who was fighting monsters. And it was very much um, like, I guess, like Hellblazer, the, the comic book, John Constantine uh, from DC Comics, except he had a samurai sword. And uh, at one point I got a comment back like, this this is looks nice, but it's a little too much like a like a almost like a Looney Tunes cartoon with your humor. And I was like, thank you very much. And then I didn't realize they were telling me that was not the way to, you know, I had obviously not gotten the memo that comics needed to be darker. And, <laughs> uh, so that's 
that's why I'm so excited about middle grade books, because I think I'm getting to do a lot of the fun style of comics that I enjoyed as a kid that you, you know, as you know, Batman, depending on the Batman you pick up, the Batman comic, it may be for kids. It It's probably not for kids. And uh, when I was a kid, when I was eight, any Batman you picked up was okay for kids. And uh, that's one thing I like about being mainly in schools and libraries and, and ways to get directly to the kids. Well, I mean, do you ever see yourself uh, doing like a Max Meow Returns? Uh, it's, it's 20 years in the future when he's retired and he comes back and it's, it's, it's uber dark. <laughs> well, I will tell you that Max Meow 4, the fourth Max Meow book, if, if we were to do a Max Meow fourth book, uh, deals with, I wanted to, to discuss uh, theories about time travel and some of those ideas that might actually be an idea that pops up. I have to say I haven't developed anything yet, but that was definitely something that I had considered. Uh, what it, I heard is you just promised me Frank Miller references left and right when that <laughs> happens. <laughs> well, you know, when I was doing one of my earlier books, I, I did a comic called Buzz Boy, which is about a teen sidekick. It's pretty much like a goofy Robin character who never really grows up. And uh, in the story I was doing, uh, I wanted to have a Batman type character. And I created and I based it upon my friend's comic shop name, which is in Delaware, uh, Blue, Captain Blue Hen Comics. So I created a character called Captain Blue Hen, and I completely, the entire, like, three pages he was on, I was riffing on the all-star Batman book, where Batman is, you know, being gritty and uh, even more so than Dark Knight. And I was, but I was kind of making fun of it because I thought it had become a cliche. And boy, I've never had so many people apparently get mad, you know, mad at me because apparently you can't make fun of Frank Miller. Oh, but, <laughs> uh, but I definitely will be tying into that. I, I have to. I think there's going to be some Back to the Future stuff in that one. Uh, anything I can do to sort of tap into these uh, movies and TV shows that I watched way too much of when I was younger. What? Uh, well, here's, a, here's an opportunity to alienate friends, so we'll assume that we're going to stick with uh, the, the biggest names. But what are some of the main big comics and big cartoons that have influenced you? Uh, well, like I said, Bugs Bunny cartoons, uh, growing up, it really, the you know, as a kid, I loved Scooby-Doo, and, um, but what really intrigued me were the monsters in Scooby-Doo, and it's funny, because then I loved Super Friends, and the, the main art influence from that that I've picked up is an artist by the name of Alex Toth, who also helped create Space Ghost, uh, and he did a lot of the monsters and characters that were background characters in Scooby-Doo. He worked on Johnny Quest. Uh, and there was something about he he really broke things down to a simple line. And so the artwork really uh, intrigued me. Anything that was Hanna-Barbera in the early 70s and early 80s was probably had some Alex Toth in it. Uh, growing up. You know, I was reading a lot of Batman, but it was collections. So it had comics from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And, you know, it ran the gamut from uh, Neil Adams, who's uh, just a genius of all of that, all the way back to uh, Bob Kane and, and uh, Bill Finger and, and uh, you know, these the original Batman artists. Um, 
And I, I feel like I picked up a little bit of each one of those things as I've been working on. And uh, but it's funny because now I realize there were some influences that were there. I just didn't realize how much they were affecting me. And it's like Charles Schultz uh, and just the way he portrayed the character of Charlie Brown. And and I just remember feeling so sad for Charlie Brown when things didn't go his way. Like I just I was like Linus on on the when they would do the Halloween special for Peanuts. I just I thought maybe this year the Great Pumpkin would come. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I I kind of want to try to have some of those elements where there's a lot of silliness going on, but it's just like that friend that always makes jokes. There's also like sad times as well. And uh, I, I'm trying to think whatever. So the Batman 60s show was a big influence. I was uh, just, you know, if it if it was sort of bigger than life, I really enjoyed it. And um, it's funny, some of the some of the jokes that pop up as I'm writing, I, I'll be there and like, I don't know where I got that joke from. Um, but I will tell you this, I original, the original plan for book two or three was going to be that a superhero uh, comes out of retirement, a superhero dog. And he looks an awful lot like the Dark Knight. And this, <laughs> is, like a weird, this is a couple of years ago. Dogman was fairly new. And this is why my son Will became so important to to uh, Max Meow. Is uh, I think I think like the third or fourth book came out of Dogman, and I had already planned on having this character called the Bark Knight. I was like, oh, this is genius! No one will think of this, the Bark Knight. <laughs> and you know, we we got the we. I always would you know we went to the comic shop and picked up the latest Dogman, and Will is reading. It might have been I don't know. I don't know if it was Lord of the Fleas or what it was. The first time they started calling Dogman as a superhero, the Bark Knight. And he's like, Dad, Dave Pilkey ripped you off. And, <laughs> and I was like, nope. And he's like, you can't use it. I go, no, I can't. And he goes, but how did he, how did he know that? And I just said, you know what? I think we watched all the same TV shows and, and you know, read all the same comic books. And, you know, that's bound to happen. But Will saved me from, you know, untold criticism and possibly litigation. Who knows? I don't know if you can. Well, maybe you can sue on a parody of a, of a parody. I don't know. You know, I think I honestly I, I think I, I think I'm just a little too tiny for uh, for them to worry about. But it, it would be one of those things where, you know, kids who read books, you know, read comics and graphic novels, they read all of them. So. I'm sure I would have heard about it in a letter pretty quickly. Well, the thing, and I know that, you know, I'm speaking as an outsider um, from for the comics industry and, and, and the art industry, because God knows I just don't have the talent. Um, but um, I would think there is enough recycling of ideas throughout comics that there would be a little bit more leeway. Like, you know, Bishop and X-Men comes out mysteriously right after the Terminator film blows up and does really well. Right. There's and then there's a five other uh, different bishop type characters in other universes. Everybody's got some version of the guy that runs really fast. Everybody's got the guy, the villain that freezes. Yeah, well, that is true. There is an awful lot of connection, and we all pull from each other. And in some ways, I think that complements each other. Uh, you know, even going down to uh, Shakespeare was known as you know he would swipe whole parts of plays and incorporate them into his play if it worked well so not that i'm likening myself to shakespeare but maybe you know 
Shakespeare of comic book cats uh, is not really a title I can claim yet. Well, I don't know. Long enough timeline, everything else goes out of print, and Max Meow's still around. You get all the credit. <laughs> I know that's a that's a pretty durable book. We've got some uh, nice varnish on there, so it could it could withstand the test of time. If the nuclear apocalypse happens, uh, cockroaches and Max Meow. <laughs> um, I had a, I had a question somewhere in there. I, I uh, just getting silly. <laughs> But uh, I did want to ask about specifically your process uh, in in writing Max Meow because you know you, you're you're brainstorming with the kids. You've got I assume do you know your ending? Do you have some kind of outline, or are you just page by page by page? What's going to make the best panel? How much planning are you doing in advance? Um, usually, what I'll do is so going all the way back to the pitch. The pitch essentially what I did was I pitched uh, the Amazon paragraph describing the book, you know, for three books. So I gave, I gave an overview of Max Meow. I said, you know, in this issue, and it's almost like just an overview of kind of what could be happening. And then when the interest was enough there, then I went into a very detailed where I kind of just a stream of consciousness wrote several paragraphs about what was going to happen in the first Max Meow book. And what was great about this was I was doing it because I was required to. You know, nobody's going to invest in your book if they don't have some idea of what's going to happen. And um, it forced me to write it and then think like, oh, I have to, I have to foreshadow this somehow. So I would say this was the most outlined any of my books had ever been before. And it still is very, I, I tried to leave enough open spaces so I could add some silliness uh, here and there. Uh, for instance, there's a, you know, I had Max was going to run to Mindy's lab. Uh, that's pretty much all I had written. And then I ended up uh, having Max run past this very grumpy cat who, you know, yells and he's like, you know, he's, he's just that grumpy guy you see on the street who has a problem with anything. And then later on, I'm I'm having this big battle take place with between Max and Agent M uh, and these creatures from that came to life from a miniature golf course. And somehow it came into my head like, oh, they're going to like they're going to smash that old guy's car or something like that. You know, it's he became a reoccurring character and he, he shows up in in at least the first three Max Meow books um, and really was just a throwaway. And that's. So that's one of those things where there's an outline of the over uh, the overview, but I want to have those moments for where little fun things sort of happen. With a book like this, where the plot just just moves and it has to because we're we're getting a newsflash page. It's a couple of chapters. We better bring in a dinosaur. Let's <laughs> let's get to it. Right. Um, Oh, or is it going with that? Oh, when you have a character like the like the grumpy old guy, um, who we've now seen a couple of times, do you then feel an obligation that oh, this this person I've spent enough time with them that they have to be a, a bigger part of the story? Yeah, it's funny because this older guy, he, I I have an idea where the payoff is going to be, and I was going to do it in the second book with him, and and then in the third book, like I started to get ideas like oh. He can do this. This would be so funny because he's so negative all the time. I'll have him do something that's really cool. And I just never get around to it because he's always so full of being a jerk. You know, it's it's like that thing. There's one scene uh, where he is on a bicycle and he's zooming past people and knocking them down. 
And we've all been on the street where we have that one guy that's obnoxiously ignoring or, or traffic. And you just wish like, oh, I wish like Godzilla's foot would just come down and smash his car. So he's become that guy where I can take out all those uh, angsty feelings about people who cut me in, in traffic or in the grocery line. Uh, and uh, I guess I guess when I work through those feelings, then maybe I can I can let him have his happy ending. Uh, well, here's a here's a a question of me taking the book probably a little bit more serious. Um, right, it, it should be taken serious, but this is a fun book. There are space meatballs, but me when I and I'm reading it, I'm uh, you know when Max is is without spoiling too much, trapped beneath a whale and eats uh, part of the the meatball and then develops superpowers. Uh, that's it's really enough. I don't feel that superpower that's uh, spoiling. Uh, and I know that meatball, for plot reasons, is going to come back up later. But I still wonder, if you know that the that a little bit of meatball gives you superpowers, why wouldn't you eat the whole meatball? What happens? You could be Thanos <laughs> by the end. <laughs> well, we might find out what happens. But, uh, and I will say that, you know, that meatball was another one where it's just the MacGuffin. It was the the thing that sort of gets the story going. And what's funny is... Uh, there's so many things that can shoot off from the meatball. It's uh, so I, and I will say there's a little bit of meatball in book two, in book three, we find you will finally find out what the origin of this meatball is. And it was one of those things where, um, you know, it's just like, there's also another character that seems like a throwaway character. uh, And he is the groundskeeper at this miniature golf course in the book. His name's Cody. And the thing, Cody, I have a golden retriever named Cody. So I I wrote him very similar. And the thing is, though, is Cody, there's all these things that are going to that can happen to this character. And I want to every time I create a little character like that or the space meatball, I want it to be important enough in a way that it could become the whole story. And I always use the the example is in the Fantastic Four comic book, the great artist Jack Kirby, who created Captain America. He co-created Fantastic Four, uh, the Hulk, the Avengers with Stan Lee. Um, and he and he he just added the Silver Surfer, who many people know of and will probably show up in Marvel movies very soon. Uh, he created the Silver Surfer as kind of a throwaway character. And then the Silver Surfer now has had his many series. He's going to pop up. He's popped up in the Fantastic Four movie. And I always try to think about that fact, like any character can become somebody. And because uh, as a kid, I always loved that when I'd go back and see somebody drawn into the background. And then it turns out later, you know, Batman realizes he's the criminal. And uh, so even with the meatball, there's a little bit of that. Uh, I will say I would not advise that if there's a giant space meatball in your life, not to eat it all. Uh, <laughs> But we will see what happens when that meatball uh, is, you know, when other people poke and prod the meatball, what's going to happen? It's not always a positive. Without without spoiling there, there, we will see more meatball. No, I I understood immediately from a plot perspective why why we needed some meatball for later. Uh, It was kind of brilliant. That was kind of one of the most brilliant. There have been so many different versions of the Superman origin story. 
Um, but I love it when things go really nuts. Like I know a lot of people had prop trouble with uh, Frank Miller's version, but I love that. You're, yeah, send Superman into the into the military. Send him under under the sea. We haven't seen that before. Let's let's try that. Um, but I always love the Smallville revision that when he comes down, it's with a meteor shower, which is why in our modern age we're not getting pictures of the ship. And then those bits of kryptonite are all around Smallville, so there's always going to be trouble. And they're uh, creating other supervillains, so there's somebody new every week. I always thought that was, ah, so that, I mean, that's what you get to do when you're doing, you know, the 50th, 70th incarnation of a character. But, oh, that's a smart change. I, I hope that becomes canon from now on. That's, uh, you know, that's funny. I never thought about the fact that that's why they didn't see the spaceship, because all the meteors were coming down on the Smallville TV show. This <laughs> is a pretty smart change. And it's also why he didn't immediately become, super, you know, super strong, because there's kryptonite everywhere. And uh, the further away he goes, you know, I, I know a lot of people have felt like, you know, if they stayed in their hometown, that would be like being surrounded by kryptonite. So it's sort of symbolic that. When Black Smallville, that's when he he really found himself. Yeah, if he becomes a townie for life, he maybe he never even knows how how powerful he could be. <laughs> you gotta head to Metropolis. Son. I know it's like Clark works at the car wash. <laughs> would be uh, yeah, I, I I would be interested in that version. Uh, anyway, back to uh, to Max Beal, but that's that's what that's what struck me about the the meatball was oh that's so, because of the way it's used for other things yet to come without without spoiling like, oh that's that's the asteroid that's the MacGuffin that's gonna allow us to continue. I'm assuming that meatball's coming up in book two and book three. Yeah, um, the meatball makes a brief appearance in book two, but book three it comes front and center again, and uh, you you learn a little bit about it you. There's actually um, a character in the third book that pops up because of it that uh, you never would have, I, I, I don't think I would have even thought of before I, I sat down to do book three. I'm like, oh, we need this kind of character. And again, it was a, it's a character that when I created it, it was just going to be a character that sort of moved the story along. And by, I don't want to give too much away, but uh, uh, what has happened is I love this character so much. And I, you know, I'm like, I would write a whole book series based on this character. And, uh, you know, and it's one of those things where it sort of reminded me why I love to create comics, because there's always something more new and fun that pops up every time. And as you know, I won't give away the ending, but in Max Meow, Cat Crusader, there's a it's not a cliffhanger as much as something amazing happens at the end. And I try to have that at the end of every one of the Max Meow books. Something's going to happen at the end of book two that's going to make you want to read book three. And that, and for me, that was always what made me want to read more comics. And, uh, you know, and comics are how I learned how to read. Because as soon as I discovered comics, I just pushed all the Dr. Seuss to the side. And not that I haven't come back and read all those Dr. Seuss books a million times now as a dad and love them. But... Uh, it just it just made me want to read more and more. And uh, I always one of the things when I do school visits is I always point out to kids is that I get so many of my ideas just because I've read so many books, whether they're comics or regular books. And when I was in elementary school, I was known as the kid who read every book in the library. And I That's think good writing training. Yeah. And I, I think, it, you know, it's funny because 
someone had to actually remind me of that. And I started to hit, like it hit me, the reason I was in the library all the time and could read every book, and it wasn't a giant library, but it, I read a lot of books, is I think my teacher was sending me away because if I got my work done, I would distract everybody with jokes or <laughs> comics or whatever. So I, I, it might have been some form of punishment that led to that, but it, it paid off for me. Well, let me ask you this. If I had, uh, you know, I'm suddenly in charge of DC and Marvel, all the all the big uh, comic companies and image, everybody. Uh, and I can say to you, John Gallagher, I love Max Meow so much. I will let you do anything you want with any character from the universe or any team of characters. Who do you pick? Wow. Well, you know, it used to always be Batman. I wanted to write and draw Batman. And someone actually said to me, it's funny because at the time I took it as an insult, but they, they said, nobody wants to read John Gallagher's Batman. They don't care about your, like, if you stop writing it, someone else will take your place the next month. So he, he was sort of saying, like, don't make this, you know, appreciate creating your own characters. Uh, so I've, I've since gone into that whole idea of if I were going to write something like that, I would want to write characters that maybe haven't gotten their due yet. Um, and I, you know, and some of them probably have, I just haven't read it, but, uh, there's a character at Marvel for some reason fascinates me, Speedball. And sure. he was, uh, created by Steve Ditko, who, who also co-created Spider-Man. And he's just never quite gotten, I, I think he's goofy and, but he, sometimes they played it too serious. Sometimes they played it too goofy. And for some reason, I think I could redeem Speedball, uh, and uh, years ago, I had a whole vision of if I was going to do a kid's line of comics for Marvel Comics and uh, it would incorporate like one book would be called Hulk Smash because everybody loves the fact that Hulk smashes stuff. And that would pretty much be what that book was about. Uh, I don't know if it would last very long. And then if I had to go into um, DC Comics, I love Robin. I mean, as much as I love Batman, Robin was really the inspiration. I kept just like wishing that my dad would reveal to me he really was Batman and now I was going to get to be Robin. And uh, so I think I would love to do like Robin, Dick Grayson as Robin in early stories where he's off on his own because uh, that was always my dream as a kid. And as part of the reason why I created Buzz Boy, because uh, when I created the Buzz Boy comics, Robin had become Nightwing and become very dark, just like Batman. I think they've I think they've altered it a bit. He's much more of his own character now. And I was like, this is what I would do. So that's what's great about being an independent creator and even working with places like Random Houses. You get to you know play in your own sandbox, but you can take all these influences that made you happy and incorporate them in. You're a man after my own heart. My my book, Banneker Bones, uh, that character is very much a Batman-esque character, but it's written from the perspective of his cousin, Ellicott Skullworth, because it was my dream. I want to go be Robin and with Batman. That would be the most wonderful thing that could happen to a oh person. Oh, my gosh. It's like talking to my brother here. Uh, <laughs> I know. Well, you know, Jules Pfeiffer, the, the cartoonist I was talking about who did that book, The Great Comic Book Heroes, he wrote in his foreword how he hated Robin. And I was like, how can you hate Robin? He's the greatest character ever. He hated him not because he hated him because 
Batman as a kid, you can aspire to become Batman. You know, ah, you know, when I get turned 15, I'll start to lift weights and I'll study detective books. And but Robin was already perfect. So I guess he was jealous of Robin. And uh, but I, I guess I, I was so full of myself. I'm like, hey, yeah, I can be Robin. I can be Robin today. Uh, so I, I never did get into that peak of physical fitness that I should have. So I guess it's good that I just write the stories. No, I always figured about a you know, six, seven month timeline. You know, you get with Batman. Batman's like, good news. I've got the workout center here in the cave. All right. Well, let's let's look at the lifting weights. And right. We'll get this yeah. down. It's, it's like, yeah, that's the new Bowflex is Batflex, you know, it'll, <laughs> it'll, it'll get you, and then, you know, and then you, to keep in shape, you, you know, get chased by his robot dinosaur and fight bad guys. I like that. Yeah, you could get, you could get in peak condition pretty quick. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't be an issue. <laughs> I also love comic book arguments. Um, you know, I, I, I mentioned why wouldn't he eat the whole meatball? And it is, it's a very much a comic book person argument or, you know, why is Batman v Superman hinges on that? They, they know each other's moms are named Martha and therefore the movie is run. It's like that movie was absurd to begin with. That right. no point was this going to be a realistic depiction of, you know, the human condition, nor would we want it to be. Uh, and, and so any, anytime somebody picks on something in a comic book, there's a part of me that gets it. And there's another part of me that goes, well, all the things we saw, the billionaire that wants to help humanity and, and is risking his own life for that. Um, <laughs> I, I wish that our billionaires did that. All of that. And that's the thing that's, oh, I, I was on board, but that's not realistic. I right, get out of here. <laughs> well, it, it's like the old, I was at a comic convention when I was 13 and someone asked a creator, like, your version of the Fantastic Four, is that is that a real story or imaginary? And he <laughs> said, they're all imaginary. And, uh, and I, that's what I try to do is, you know, I, I'm not as big a fan of Zack Snyder uh, and his, uh, like, his, his Superman, you know, when he did, uh, which super, what was that called? Man of Steel. Um, and... I really liked some parts of it. There were some parts I hated because I'm like, that's not my Superman. But at the same time, like, I can always go back and watch Superman the movie if I want. Like, it should be okay to have these. Like, I, I used to love continuity so much. But, you know, I, there were too many times where uh, movies followed the continuity and it wasn't a good thing. Like, I love the fact that. You know, I think Iron Man is a better character because of Marvel movies. I think they fixed some of the things that were wrong with him. And then, but it's funny because you talked about the scene where Batman and Superman both find out their mom is named Martha. And I just, I've had these visions of like, then Batman's fighting uh, Martha from the Martha Speaks children's books, where it's a dog that can talk. And they, he's like, Martha. And then uh, he's battling George Washington. And or, you know, finds out that it's <laughs> sure. like you can connect with every Martha that ever was in literature. And um, but yeah, at the same time, it's that's in some ways that's more realistic because how absurd would it be for these two guys to be fighting like they are? And yeah, uh, want more forgiving, like the Man of Steel. Uh, there are some things that I'm not crazy about, but there's that one scene that when it comes up, I just skip it. And I say, oh, I assume Jonathan Kent had a heart attack instead of dying in a tornado. Great. Let's get that into the movie. <laughs> <It's Right. fine. laughs> yeah. And at the same time, it's like we don't have to tell it the same way every time. You know, you, somebody did an approach and it was uh, it was just like I was 
we talked a little bit before this started about how there's going to be a Zack Snyder cut for Justice League. And while, like I said, he's not my favorite director, but at the same time, he has a vision. And if his vision works, then they'll do more movies like that. If his vision doesn't, then good. We'll we'll try something else. And that's, you know, that's been done. There's been two Fantastic Four movies, you know, styles, uh, three movies, but two different styles. And then I think there's going to be a new Fantastic Four coming up in the Marvel Universe movies. And oh, uh, probably twenty more. You get tired of any of the way the character is being done. Just wait. They'll, they'll reboot it. It'll be fine. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, and I will say the one thing I love about comics is is how ageless the characters can be, and that is one of the dangers about the movies. Is the actors are going to get older, and you know, I you know, and uh, are they going to you know, do they have to have the characters move on? Or are they going to let a new actor play this character? Like, I think there's a danger to that because when you start aging your your characters in real time, uh, just like James Bond. James Bond has been played by, what, five different actors now in movies and, and uh, if maybe more. I don't know. We can't, I don't know if we're counting Woody Allen. Um, I mean, why wouldn't we count Woody Allen? Sure. <laughs> uh, but but that stuff is interesting to me, and I'm I'm also like even with the Star Wars movies, people fans got mad. Well, they didn't do this, and I think people get this vision of what what they should have done in Star Wars. Like everybody thinks they know what should have happened for Episode Seven or Eight. And again, that going back to Max Meow is I I can I could actually address those things if I wanted to say this is what I think should have happened. In some way, I can incorporate that into my story or do something else. And uh, I, I say it to kids. Like, if you didn't like what happened in Harry Potter, then write your own Harry Potter story, you know, or, or write a story like that with your own characters. Um, I'm still mad about Sirius Black being dead in the Harry Potter movies. I, I mean, in the book, I was like, he is not dead. He, they did not say abracadabra. I, it was... Uh, Something, I don't know, stupefied. He fell into this void. But in the movies, they made sure you knew he was dead. And I'm like, no, he's not dead. And I was always the kid that I couldn't have, there had to be, the hero had to win in the end. I would get so upset when that wasn't the case. And it's probably why, like, the Zack Snyder movies are not my favorite. Because I think, for me, the superheroes, what was great was, it wasn't realistic. It was aspiring to this sort of golden way that things can be done and, and it's probably why i enjoy doing the stories that i'm doing because uh you know even some of the people that are bad guys in the first book of max meow uh i try to offer them some redemption and some will take it and some won't and you know anytime anytime someone gets thrown into a situation they can always they can always be a better person uh it's just like um you know it, it doesn't mean they're going to be though that's, I mean, and that's what life is. Like, uh, what was it Frank Miller did uh, when he did, oh, he did Dark Knight 2. It was like a second version of Dark Knight. And, uh, or it was All-Star Batman, which was a new thing. And I said, you know, he's such a great writer. I'm sure he can do a version that I like. He could do a fun version. And I didn't like it. And I'm like, but, you know, he could still do that. So I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm talking in circles. It was when he directed the the Spirit movie. Oh, uh-huh. uh, 
Which, which should have worked on paper. That should have been the most amazing movie I was ever going to see. Right, right. That was that was what it was. And I, to this day, I'm still furious about that movie because I love Will Eisner and the Spirit. Uh, you know, which was one of the original. Um, so I think he was more influenced by O. Henry than than Superman. You know, because so many comics in the 40s and 50s were influenced by Batman and Superman, and Will Eisner just took. Uh, his comic characters to just different heights in their sort of their, their thinking. And, uh, you know, I know some people think of him as, you know, the, the grandfather of graphic novels because he was doing these long form things before a lot of people were. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, okay. So somebody comes along and we get to Max Meow number 25, 30. And you say, I've, I've had so much fun with Max Meow, but for the love of God, let me do another character for a little while. <laughs> Um, and you want to go and you want to do something else and your publisher comes to you and, and, and they say, John, we, we, we have to have more Max Meow. We, we can't stop at 30. Uh, so we're going to do a gritty reboot with this artist and, and they're going to take over Max Meow for a little while. And now he smokes cigars and <laughs> whatever he knows what else. Would you be OK with that? Would you be OK with somebody else's interpretation of your universe? No, I think I think something like Max Meow, my hope would be that I would always have influence and uh you know again going back to will eisner he was back in the days where you had a, a bullpen you had an office where everybody met and he oversaw he had assistants and uh i kind of and just like animated productions you know will have a lot of hands but there's one one person who's sort of the director and producer of that and i would love to you know just if you know when you work in in entertainment you have to be able to be part of a team so i would never say i don't think i could ever be charles schultz who's like i'm the only guy who's going to do this comic strip and i know later in life he had some assistance i would love the idea of if i got tired i could sort of have that influence to help guide it and uh especially because new voices will will bring about new great things i think i mean i mean i think it's been done with um you know, things like Garfield and, you know, we were talking about Batman. I mean, it's exciting that so many different authors have taken a taken a shot at Batman and done so many things. Um, and maybe I would. I mean, the Batman animated series that was on, that was that was my Batman. To me, that's the best Batman on film that was ever done. And in fact, I just bought the DVD set and am so excited to watch it. And uh, but you know, it captured a lot of the darkness of Batman that you felt uh, even years ago before things got really gritty. And um, but at the same time, there was a lightness to certain elements as well. Yeah, there's a piece of music Shirley Walker wrote for the Poison Ivy episode that to this day is on my regular routine replay for when I'm writing. It's just this big operatic piece of Batman the first time he, he battles Poison Ivy in her greenhouse. And it's music so good that part of me feels like, why would you put this in a, in a cartoon? This could be its own feature film score. And part of me also, because that's how good the animated series was, that you wouldn't just have music. You would have Shirley Walker write what might be, I think, her best uh, music ever for Batman versus Poison Ivy. Oh, I'm going to go pull that up tonight so I can hear that. Oh, it's it, it. I'll send you the link. It is worth it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because that series sometimes would have themes only for that episode. I think there was like a 
robotic Joker one time on there, and he had his own theme song, and just for that one episode. So, and it, and it, that that for a show, for a TV show, that did have a the soundtrack uh, was was cinematic, as you said. Well, I could talk your your head off about my love of comics all night. There, there's no end to it, but I we uh, kind of glossed over the fact that you are the art director for for Ranger Rick, which I subscribed to as a child. And one doesn't just become the art director, I assume, for Ranger Rick just off the street. So for all those aspiring uh, comic uh, comic artists who, who want to say, I love to draw, I love to create, how am I going to make a living? How did you take what what was a passion from when you're five and you're you're you're, you're writing the the, the car theme heroes uh, to uh, to become an art director for a major publication? Um, well, you know, art was art became such a big part of my life from that point. And it got me a lot of attention from friends and things like that. So I, I always leaned towards that. And it was such a part of my life that I don't think I even realized that I could make a living from it. And as a junior in high school, I was at this summer arts program in Pennsylvania. And they had a college fair. And I, I said to my friend, I'm like, why are these are, you know, we're at an arts camp. They have a college fair. I'm like, why are these all art schools? And he's like, we're artists. Aren't you going to go to art school? And I was like, yeah, okay. And and so <laughs> it was very much a, I hadn't really thought about it. And I did, I went to Temple's art school, Tyler for a year. And, but I, I decided to study graphic design because graphic design had a lot of the elements that were in comics. And uh, to me, which was, you know, drafting, uh, you had, you know, <laughs> you had square boxes, you had, you you know, it was solving a problem, which is what graphic design was. And as opposed to the sort of ethereal ideas behind a lot of fine arts. Um, then I transferred to Penn State University, uh, which I had sworn I would never go to because everybody in Pennsylvania seems to go to Penn State. And uh, but I found out they had a great graphic design program. So I, I studied there, and a lot of that was poster design, print design. We were doing multimedia and, and computer design at a time when a lot of places weren't yet. And um, so I had just decided, you know, comics then, I, I got to Penn State, though, and realized they don't have any illustration classes. And I'm like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? So I, I took drawing classes. I took painting classes. I took design classes. And then every just about every day after I got all my classes done, I would come home and I would draw till about one in the morning and I would look, pour over comic books. I taught myself how to draw comics uh, more so than ever being taught. And, uh, and it was old. It was all the comics I grew up with. It was Walt Simonson's Manhunter comics, which is pretty obscure as far as comics go, but, but all comics aficionados. Uh, he also did Batman. And I remember just, trying to redraw the way he was, uh, the way he drew. And um, so when I graduated, I, I just knew, you know, the whole goal was just, hey, just got to put food on the table, got to pay my rent. And I got a job doing, you know, uh, essentially uh, to date myself doing yellow page ads for the phone book and for this small company. And, uh, you know, for me, it was always, you had an obligation to yourself and then later on to family is you pay the bills and then you there is time to work and try to accomplish 
those other things, uh, you know, of comics. And I, I told myself within five years, I'm going to publish my own comic. And it actually was closer to 10 years, but I eventually did it. I mean, I didn't really do a comic until I was about 29. And, uh, and it just sort of, I, I, I got into graphic design right as the internet was really taking off. So I had a couple years that were just, Hey, this is great. And I had money saved up. I could self-publish my own comics. Uh, and a lot of the ideas of putting a book together, you know, there were a lot of artists. I had friends that had drawn Batman, but they didn't know how to, how to design a book to send off to a printer. So I became this advisor to a lot of comic book artists, people who had done Batman and Spider-Man. And that was kind of how I learned even more. And, um, you know, what's, and then, you know, there's ups and downs of the tech bubble burst. And I would go from doing web design to print design. I was doing flash animation for a while. And it was really, the trick was, anytime someone said, can you do this? I'd say, sure. And there were often days where I was teaching myself how to use a program. I became director of animation for a design company uh, and basically was looking out of the book, designing, doing an animation that was due the next day. And uh, a lot of that is just like in publishing. You're not always you're not always given what you want. Like they don't always hand you what you want as a writer if you have an article to write. Or um, so in this case, it was I'll learn how to do it. And then for a couple of years, uh, my uh, my children, their school was a small school in Virginia. They didn't have an art teacher, and I was adamant, you've got to have an art teacher. And they were like. Well, it's part-time because it's a small school. Would you want to do it? So two days a week, I started becoming an art teacher while I was also doing design. And after this long-winded story, what happened was after the first time in 30 years, a, an art director job popped up at Ranger Rick because they had the same art director for 30 years. And I just happened to be looking for work at that point. And it was that combination of the comics doing stuff for kids, the art teacher job. Like it was, it really became this job. It was as though I had been training for this for so long because Ranger Rick is all about teaching kids about wildlife and nature, but it's gotta be fun. So you're trying like, how can we, how can we educate and enlighten people, but also make it interesting? And, uh, and Ranger Rick's been that perfect combination. I mean, the biggest thing was, actually had a budget to hire other people who are better than me to draw. So we often have artwork done by some great, fantastic illustrators. And um, what's really neat is I've also gotten to hire a couple people that I really look up to. Uh, and I, I, for the second year in a row for the Halloween issue, our, our October issue, which is my favorite issue, I was able to hire Tom Richmond from Mad Magazine to do the artwork for an article. And, uh, and so, you know, I got him to draw like Dracula and the Wolfman and the whole article was actually about these plants that look like they're out of a horror movie. Like there's one called the devil's fingers and there's one plant that smells like rotting flesh and he was just the perfect artist for it. So, so yeah, it's not a, it's not a job that comes along for everybody. And, and it, I just happened to have all the weird little things to combine to be part of that. And it's, and I've learned so much too, because I know more about nature 
I think I'm annoying, you know, definitely annoying all my family at Thanksgiving when I'm yelling <laughs> at them about recycling or, you know, uh, weed killer, the dangers of weed killer. And even my wife, like, doesn't make me rake up quite as many leaves because it's actually not as good. You know, it, it's actually better to leave the leaves uh, for the winter. Oh, but, I'm playing that clip for my wife. <laughs> yeah, I'll send you that issue. <laughs> We're going to leave the leaves on the ground this year, honey. That's right, right. I've got confirmation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think our esteemed audience knows that they need to recycle uh, and how important that is. Why is weed killer a bad idea? Well, weed killer, the problem with weed killer is it not only kills the weeds, it will, certain kinds, there's some that are actually safer. Uh, a lot of weed killers, especially because they're so concentrated, will also kill all the insects that are in the grass that actually, and the worms, the things that actually keep the grass healthy underneath the dirt. So, um, so you know, they talk a lot about using alternate types of weed killers. And, uh, you know, that's actually, there's a, an adult magazine called National Wildlife that covers a lot more of that. Uh, but we have a comic book section of every issue of Ranger Rick now. When you were reading it, it was more of a story but now they have a three to four page comic starring Ranger Rick, Scarlet Fox, and Boomer Badger. And they travel around and sometimes it's an ecological lesson and other times it's uh, just learning about other kinds of animals. Like, you know, the, uh, I'm trying to think, there was one about sharks coming down the rivers uh, towards otters in uh, certain places in the United States. And part of it was because of climate change uh, which we don't shy away from anymore. You know, that was one of those things where uh, is the sharks were kind of getting confused and going down these rivers or they're looking for food because they can't find it in the ocean. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of neat to see that com comics used in such a great educational way. It's always the favorite part of the magazine. Like we had one issue, we left it out because we had a very long article and we never had so many complaints as when the comic was taken out. So, uh, so I'm very proud of that. I don't draw it. I'm, I art direct it. I work with the writers and the artists for that. And, um, you know, it's just really fun to have this character that's been around for about 55 years now. Look at you. You're, 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 you're glowing as you talk about your job <laughs> at Ranger Rick. This is a man who truly loves what he does. <laughs> I, I do. And, you know, it's funny because some people I know, they want to do just like doing, if I was doing just Max Meow, that would be great. But I do think in some ways I'm a better author because I do have other influences coming in. And I think other, I think a lot of writers and artists, they have other ways. Like some people it's music um, or movies. And, uh, but I, plus I drive my wife crazy if I was just home all the time. So. <laughs> How is uh, is quarantine going for you? Uh, sooner or later, all conversations lead toward quarantine and COVID-19. So we have to spend a little time on that. Well, I'll say that, you know, when I was working on, I was just finishing up. Uh, let me see. I had finished Max Meow book one when quarantine started to uh, kick up. And uh, luckily, the National Wildlife Federation, which publishes Ranger Rick, they sent us all home very early in March. And we, of course, we all thought it was going to be a month, two months. And um, it 
it really, we had some edits. We had some changes to book one because, you know, when you're putting that first book together, there are certain things that you realize once you, you know, put it together, oh, this isn't going to work if we're going to keep doing this as a series. So I had a lot of edits and it worked out really well for me at first because suddenly I had, I didn't, I didn't have that uh, hour and a half commute. So automatically I had over an hour added to my schedule every day because what I would do at Ranger Rick is often I'd work at lunch hour. I would might work on Max Meow or I would work, you know, finish my work for the day and then start working and stay at the office. Um, so now since I was home, I had a little more flexibility to jump on Max Meow, jump on Ranger Rick. And um, it's just, you know, it's, but it's also that danger of getting yourself to stop. And for me, it's not, it's never been, oh, I can't get myself to work at home. It's how do I get myself to stop? And um, so it's, but it's actually worked out well because I've had a couple people, I have people help me do the color for Max Meow. And I was actually, for the first time, able to bring in some uh, young local artists who had had an interest in doing comics. They never had. I was able to, uh, you know, have them on as assistants and having them there at the dining table with me was really great because I found it, you know, I do better when I've got people around me and we were able to go back and forth and it really has sped up the process. We don't have to go and make as many corrections because we're all sitting there together. And also my kids are all school from home, including my my college age daughter. And she's going to university, but she's virtual right now. And uh, I have my two sons as well. So it's neat because we're they're still seeing me. I'm working very hard on all these things, but they're around and we have that that time we need to have. Whereas if I was having to go into an office and maybe staying at the office, that might actually be harder. Um, so it's a balance. I mean, there's some days, there was one day I had a, a conference call. I had to go outside and the wind is blowing. And I'm like, this is literally the only place I can be right now, you know, except the garage. <laughs> but. So um, how, how are you finding ways to promote Max Meow? Because I'm assuming you're, you know, you're virtual. Obviously, you're now on, on, on the greatest podcast that could ever be. So that you got that sorted. Uh, but what other yeah. things are you doing to make sure that you're getting the word out since I assume school visits are out for a while? Yeah, well, what's great is schools and the teachers have been so great in adapting to the you know, changing environment. And even though it was kind of rough and tumble for a while, uh, you know, the school districts have gotten so good at adapting and with Zoom and Google meetups and things like that. So I've been doing virtual uh, visits to schools. And to give you an example, I, I there's a school in Maryland, a school district, uh, instead of visiting 150 kids at a time, I did an appearance and there were 600 kids on there. It was the entire elementary school section of this town. and it was really fun. Now, what was nice was there was a, an organizer who basically was had a chat room open so that they could ask questions, and they did have mute on because 600 kids all yelling at once would be tough. But I did miss that. I missed hearing that that cheering, and that's been good. I've done a bunch of podcasts. Uh, of course, I've done you know tonight the coolest podcast around, and really they all. You know, Wild Cat on the Street is the coolest podcast around, but <laughs> secondly, 
right. Well, I, I so would love, like I said, I used to do animation. I would love to come up with like an app uh, that has a little animation of Max going, you know, here's my correspondent on the street. And then kids can film themselves doing news, news things. I haven't, I, again, like my wife always says, yeah, you need another project. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, um, yeah, and I've been doing that, you know, there's been a lot of social media on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And what I will say is people are very understanding that I'm maybe promoting a little heavier than I would. Uh, and people are sharing like never before and just being really, really, really supportive. So. Well, that's book one by book 30. You'll, you'll be over it and you'll, <laughs> you won't even. <laughs> You won't even bother messing with this. Oh, I'm, st I'm still working on three. You got me on 30 already. It started at 20, and now I'm up to 30. <laughs> well, I'm going to have you to 50 before we're done. I uh, <laughs> wish I'm looking at our time, and I'm seeing how it, it's, it's flown by, and I, I know it's going to be sooner rather than later. Uh, so esteemed audience knows I have to ask, because I ask everybody. Uh, John Gallagher, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? No. <laughs> no, I actually, I've never seen a flying saucer. I will say this. I can't remember it, but when I lived, uh, when I was five and six, around the time of the comics, uh, apparently my parents were selling their house, and I used to talk about my friend Boing Boing, who was a ghost, I would say. Uh, I don't really recall this, except I was pretty adamant that I had a ghost for a friend, and when people came to buy the house or came to look around the house, they're looking around. They're like, oh, this is nice. And I said, here, I'll show you where the ghost lives. And apparently they wouldn't let me be at any of these open houses from that point on. Uh, so perhaps, <laughs> perhaps, uh, I will say I'm very open minded about it. And when I was from 11 to about 15, I, all I dreamt about was seeing a flying saucer or a UFO. That would have been. You know, and I'm so excited even that NASA may find life in the atmosphere of Venus or under the surface of Mars. Like just knowing that there's other life out there would be uh, it's something I hope I get to experience before I die. Oh, wouldn't that have been a great day? You you get to be Robin with Batman and as you're in the Batmobile, there's a flying saucer. Now I have everything. Now wait till <laughs> I tell my ghost. <laughs> well the uh where did our time go? I know we had we had a, an internet interruption. It always flies by, and the, this particular episode has flown by even faster because we're talking about everything that I love. But I want to be respectful because I know you've got more events tomorrow. Um, so thank you, uh, John, so much for for making the time this evening. And I'll, I'll end with uh, this final question, and we'll, we'll call it a night. Okay. Uh, my final question is always some variation of if you could go back to the start of your career or wherever you like in your career and give yourself some advice that would have made a significant difference for you and might make a significant difference for everybody listening or watching now, what would you go back and tell yourself? Um, hmm. I think I would say it's funny because I saw actually saw somebody talk about this online today and not this question, but what would I tell my 15 year old self? Although I was doing this later is it all works out. And really just, you know, stay the course uh, because there have been times in my life where I sat there and thought I have spent thousands of hours doing this and I could have been doing something else. I, you know, there are times you feel like you're wasting your time. Like, you know, I, I had more rejection letters sent to me 
uh, from comic book companies, and I've had you know plenty of rejections from publishers over the years. It's a long road, and there are times where I felt I regret. I was like, this has been a waste of time. I I could have been spending more time with my family, or you know, and uh, but just knowing that tell to tell myself it it works out, you know. And again, even if I never uh, published with a larger publisher, or even if I never have great success, just the act of creating is important enough. So, so I, it works out. Well, uh, quick follow up then. Uh, we get to an Avengers Endgame style, where if Doctor Strange tells Tony Stark the advice that would make a difference, it doesn't uh, <laughs> doesn't work out the way it's supposed to, and the universe doesn't work. You think there's a chance if you go back and you tell yourself, then you just calm down and say, oh, okay, it works out. Well, I'll wait here. <laughs> I bet it's going to happen. <laughs> maybe maybe I would tell myself to get a little more sleep, because I think I, I think I drew myself into oblivion a couple times. Maybe when we find out the multiverse is real, you can go to the universe where that did happen and, and ask that John Gallagher, how how did it work out? <laughs> and then you'll know. Right. <laughs> you, yeah, you hosed me, man. That was terrible. <laughs> I was going to work so hard. You told me that it was going to be fine. I just sat around. <laughs> I sat on the bed chair watching MTV. Yeah, don't worry like about I bet greatness will be along. I says, it hadn't happened yet, yeah. but I'm waiting. <laughs> Where, uh, John, where can uh, esteemed audience find you online, learn more about Max Meow, all that great stuff? Um, well, I'm on all the grams, all the social media, but uh, maxmeow.com is where they can read an excerpt of uh, Max Meow. Uh, it's also a listing of like appearances, which hopefully will include, you know, some book shows and conventions sometime soon, uh, you know, when uh, quarantine is over. Um, and uh, also, you know, links to where you can buy Max Meow books. And you can, uh, Max Meow 2 is Donuts and Danger is already available for pre-order. And Max 1 is available now. And Max 3 will be available? October, I believe it's October 6th or 7th of 2021. So this time next year, you'll already be stuck with three of my books. Well, there you go, esteemed audience. Get through 2020. There is hope. More Max Meow is on the way. We're going to be all right. <laughs> uh, as always, uh, esteemed audience, head to middlegradeninja.com for interviews with thousands of uh, publishing professionals, literary agents, authors, editors, all our favorite people. It will be wonderful for you. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. And God willing, and I'm alive. I'll see you next week.